Welcome to New Books Network and our show, New Books in Law. I'm your host, Catherine Hermes, from Central Connecticut State University. And we're talking today with Daron S. Benatar, a professor of history at Fordham University and the author of Trade Secrets, Intellectual Piracy and the Origins of American Industrial Power, and Richard D. Brown, Board of Trustees, Distinguished Professor of History Emeritus at the University of Connecticut and co-author of The Hanging of Ephraim Wheeler, A Story of Rape, Incest, and Justice in Early America. Their co-authored book, Taming Lust, Crimes Against Nature in the Early Republic, was just published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2014. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Thank you. This book is a really interesting combination of a history of law, a history of politics, Um, history of social mores, and religion. In the book, two men in the late 18th century are accused of crimes against nature. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit how you came upon these cases and how you decided to write a book about these two unusual individuals and their situations. Well, this is Dick Brown, and I can easily tell you how I came upon the case of John Farrell, the Massachusetts elderly man in his mid-80s who was accused of having sex with a dog in 1796. Uh, When my wife and I were working on the hanging of Ephraim Wheeler, there was an effort to pardon Wheeler after he was convicted for committing rape, incest, and in order to place that pardoning effort in context, We went through every pardoning effort in Massachusetts between 1780 and 1820, and in the process of examining those uh, pardoning efforts, uh, we came across the effort to uh, obtain a pardon for John Farrell after his conviction. And that led me into the case, but I set the case aside for some time, and uh, Daron will give you the next piece of it. Um, so I was, uh, um, I came to it quite intentionally. What happened was that I finished um, working on, on trade secrets, and I finished working on another uh, book, and I was, uh, at that time, I was studying psychoanalysis, and um, I was looking for something that will combine my interest in early American sexuality, and there is a famous article by John Merrin on, uh, on, on, on Bistelte in Colonial America. And at the end of the, of the essay, uh, Merrin mentioned some, you know, the, the case of Gideon Washburn said, oh, something, you know, and, and, and dismissed it with a, uh, with a sentence or so. Um, and so I decided to um, see what I could find there. So I, I, um, I went to, um, to Litchfield, and uh, from there... Um, I, I, through some luck, I found some documents and some, some things that were, uh, shed some light on the case. Um, and I called John Merrin, who was teaching at Princeton at the time. And I said to John Merrin about it and I said, you know, well, you know, and he said, well, you should contact Dick Brown because he has another case that's <laughs> similar. So Dick and I, um, uh, talked on the phone and the first thing we decided to do, we decided to do a joint, 
panel together at the annual meeting of Society of Stones of the Early Republic, it was quite appropriate because it was the meeting in which um, Dick was uh, uh, named president of society. So uh, it was um, an omen for his presidency that, if you wish, <laughs> that uh, we, we did that, and we did that in a couple of other things, and um, the time came for us to decide what to do. Um, each case on its own, um, the evidence is not sufficient, you know, it's too, you know, those are very obscure cases, difficult evidence, difficult to find evidence. Each case on its own does not really measure up to a book. Um, the two of them together are more than an article. And so we sat um, at, at, at UConn, uh, uh, Dick and I, and we discussed it, and uh, we decided to try to write a book uh, about it. And, um, and, and we did. The, uh, the first question that we needed to address together before deciding to go forward was whether this was just uh, a quirk, an oddity of no larger significance that one case in Litchfield in 1799, another case in uh, Hampshire County, uh, Leverett, Massachusetts, 1796, whether there was any reason why we should put these two together and seek any larger generalizations, or whether this was just a random cluster. And we had, we pondered that pretty substantially, and uh, we looked as far as we could in uh, the records of the early republic to see whether there were any other cases, and we found that these seemed to be, we can't say absolutely with certainty that these are the only two cases, but these are the only two cases, we can say with confidence, where men in their 80s were not only accused, but tried, convicted, and sentenced to hang. And this happening all within the space of a few years in two locations within 70 miles of each other. And that seemed to us to indicate that if we investigated it, we might indeed find that there was something going on in the society that led the authorities to take seriously the accusations of bestiality and led the authorities then to pursue these cases to the fullest extent of the law up to and including the sentence of death. And to have this happen after the American Revolution, after a penal reform was sweeping across the new United States, after the death penalty was being rolled back in state after state, to have these two states, Connecticut and Massachusetts, go ahead with this really antiquated uh, law and penal arrangement uh, seem to us to be worthy of serious investigation. It's really striking, you know, again, that um, why do you try? I mean, it's you know, one of the first questions that, that uh, this brings to mind. The first questions that, that we ask is, why are these cases brought to trial? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, there are uh, uh, cases... Uh, which society must 
you know, try murder, robbery, right. uh, violence, you know, public violence, even though rape, you know, rape is not, it's very frequently not right, but it's from different reasons altogether. But the crime of sex with animals um, is uh, particularly, it's odious in every society. It's always a taboo. It's, it's, it's something that, um, that either disgusting or funny, um, probably uh, both. So why... Yes, Stephen Colbert treated it in a very amusing way yeah, in the last 10 days. Right, with that Cotton, who... Uh, who uh, the, the Mississippi senator who, in seeking to ingratiate himself with a Mississippi audience, remarked on how he had engaged in indecent actions with uh, farmyard animals when he was young. Right, and, and, and he won, so clearly there, there was a constituency <laughs> yeah. there. Um, this was one of the funniest footnotes I've ever read, and I actually went to look up the article online. <laughs> yes, yes. So, 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 the, so the key is, you know, the, the, these kind of things happen, you know. Um, it, it turns out, um, and, you know, here I was, I, I must admit, uh, quite naive with all my kind of mumbo-jumbo psychoanalysis. I was, uh, I, I, initially I thought that bestiality is, is, is very much like cannibalism. Uh, in which, you know, cannibalism is something that people always accuse their enemies. Uh, but the real documented of dietary cannibalism is very rare. And that's what I thought about bestiality. I thought it was like witchcraft. It's not. Every society has a s- some segment of its population, almost always male, who are uh, engaged in this kind of, let's call it unsavory activity. Well, right. and, and what we found from the literature around the world from Europe, from North America particularly, is that uh, it's not a, such a terribly rare behavior. Among males between the ages of 15 and 30, there's a significant fraction in, in the U.S. historically and in the present in Europe who engage in this experimentally, maybe not as a lifelong practice, but uh, in general, we found that in colonial America, it was overlooked. It wasn't attended seriously. Uh, we did find a number of prosecutions for it, but chiefly we found uh, occasions where males between the ages of 15 and 30 were accused. Uh, a prosecution might be begun, but not uh, finished. Uh, we did, of course, find, as Moran had discussed, of cases in 17th century Puritan New England where bestiality and other sexual crimes were very severely punished, including uh, execution. But in New England, at least, after 1700, as with witchcraft, it's, it's no longer a crime that's uh, pursued by the authorities. And we did find uh, a case in New Jersey in the 1750s, and another case, interestingly, in Pennsylvania in the 1780s. And the Pennsylvania case ended in execution, but the very next year, the backlash against such uh, a grave punishment led to Pennsylvania removing uh, the crime of bestiality from the capital list. So it was no longer a capital crime there. And that indeed is the policy of all of the states, uh, South and West, 
of New England. They all removed bestiality, which was uh, a crime in the English uh, penal system uh, up into the 19th century. Indeed, uh, in England, the last man was executed for bestiality in 1831. I actually wanted to ask you a little bit about yeah. about England, um, because you do go into the history in Europe. You mentioned uh, in Sweden, there were hundreds of people executed in the 17th century. In your discussion of England, you bring up something that almost, for lack of a better word, this is my word, not yours, but is almost a pogrom against sodomites. Um, And I wonder if you could explain what's going on in England and what the relationship is between sodomy and bestiality um, in the minds of the public. So, you know, know, I think that that what you're referring to is the... um, um, very um, striking and shocking uh, for us, the discovery of uh, the number of um, men executed in England for um, so-called sodomy. Um, and it, it, and the, the, the most striking of all statistics for me is that in 1806, more men were executed for sodomy than for murder in England. Um, the English, uh, indeed, uh, were very harsh on um, sodomy, but they were not particularly harsh on bestiality, uh, where in Sweden it's the opposite. That's one of the most interesting things and in how um, you have Sweden and Norway. In Sweden, it's bestiality, and in Norway it could be sodomy. Spain and Portugal. Um, in England, uh, uh, in the United States, we have bestiality trials, but we really have don't, don't have sodomy trials. Uh, what, what it is uh, about about um, certain societies that turn them towards uh, policing this form of sexuality or that form of sexuality. Sexuality is always transgressive, particularly non-conventional sexuality. It's always calls for, uh, in times of anxiety, to, to, to disciplining. You know, who can, uh, uh, who can forget the 2004 elections um, in the United States where um, George W. Bush was... Um, uh, running for office and the, the the strike of genius by Karl Rove to make gay marriage the you know the kind of the the, the real litmus test of how where you stand and suddenly it was not about Iraq and it was not like that and uh, and so you know we have these kind of things is quite common in every society now with England what what we see and, and this uh, on that I must first of all acknowledge that we are relying on the scholarships of others. Right. Um, our specialty is in America. But, but from the reading of, of other scholars, there are many, many fine scholars of English um, uh, history from sexuality in England, uh, what we see is that in times of political crisis that the English uh, state um, um, seems to sort of um, uh, harden its treatment of uh, um, transgressive sexuality. Um, and it becomes very, it becomes associated with political transgression. So at the time of the four wars of the French Revolution, which is really what we're talking about, and this, of course, has an impact on the situation in, in North America, at that time, uh, in, in many ways, the American repression uh, um, of the Federalists, the Other Sedition Act, and the entire sort of, you know, it's not only seven, late 1790s, but all, from 1793 onwards, there's like real um, anxiety over the kind of the coming of the end of the world because of the French Revolution um, is very much um, 
it's, it, it, it has some dimensions that are reminiscent of England and some that are not. And so the sexual dimension, interestingly enough, is that uh, the manifestation in England is towards homosexual men, whereas um, uh, what we discover is this kind of, uh, uh, in, in the backwater of New England, uh, in the New England interior, that these anxieties uh, that are sort of going to be um, expressed through uh, um, hostility towards different sexualities is, is, is directed at these two men in their 80s. How many men in their 80s do you think lived in the 1790s in New England? It's, it's, it's a vanishingly small uh, fraction of the whole population makes it past 75. Uh, so, you know, and more broadly, uh, there is a kind of ideology of respect for uh, elderly men uh, and <clears throat> it is perhaps partly for that reason that uh, both Washburn and Farrell may become targets because uh, the respect that is expected to be accorded to elderly men is dependent also on their proper behavior. They are to behave in a patriarchal way, to be models of probity, of propriety, uh, certainly not uh, to manifest sexual deviance. So <clears throat> it may be precisely because they are what you might call um, deviant patriarchs that the authorities come down so hard on them. But I would again return to uh, the theme that Daron emphasized, uh, having to do with the 1790s, the panic over anti-Christian behavior, over the French Revolution's uh, unsettling dimensions, uh, because we did find uh, John Adams uh, in the 1760s and 70s in his diary speaking in a rather jocular way about uh, bestiality. He tells a joke, he records a joke in his diary that his father told in 1790, 1761. It's not especially funny, but it's, it turns on well, bestiality. John Adams was not known for being a fun guy. Well, it's a good story, not, though. Not known by some, but, but yeah. <clears throat> anyway. And the other story that he tells from the 17. 70s, not bestiality, but sodomy-related, is of a, a respected deacon in the town, an older man in his 60s or 70s, who's going around uh, sleeping with various boys in the town, and people are remarking on it, and they're joking about it, uh, and the authorities are not prosecuting it. Nobody is getting unduly upset about it. <clears throat> so, what happens in Leverett, Massachusetts in 1796, in Litchfield, Connecticut in 1799, uh, is certainly significant. Uh, and another point that Daron may want to elaborate is that <clears throat> uh, these cases in these small communities, I would say, inevitably have a personal dimension to them. And uh, both Washburn and Farrell were, in their different ways, pretty marginal. Right. And 
vulnerable. Farrell was Irish, as I recall. Farrell is Irish, yes. Uh, though I would be careful not to make too much of that in the sense of looking backward through the lens of anti-Irish sentiments of the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. In the 1790s, and this is a subject into which I've looked with some uh, seriousness, uh, Americans, New Englanders included, did not especially make a distinction between Protestant Irish and Catholic Irish. They regarded them all as Irishmen, North and South, and they regarded them as a little bit wild, but they were not unwelcome in New England. There were quite a few of them in New England. Uh, I would mention that <clears throat> the prosecutor in John Farrell's case was James Sullivan, who was the Attorney General of Massachusetts. Many people think that Sullivan is actually an Irish name. And in fact, <clears throat> Sullivan's father had come from Ireland. His father had been Catholic, but uh, James Sullivan was uh, brought up as a Protestant. And he became the governor of Massachusetts. He was the leader of the Jeffersonian uh, party in Massachusetts in the early 19th century. So I wouldn't overemphasize the, uh, the Catholic or the Irish dimension of Farrell's situation. What his religion is, I don't know. Uh, that That is not information that was in any way available. You did bring up in your book about the... Um the men, the unity men who were expelled from Ireland, you did discuss that a little bit, but you had no uh, evidence that Farrell was one of these or... Uh, I would actually say that the evidence is contrary because he had come to uh, the United States, I don't know exactly when he came to the United States, but he began to practice medicine, or put it a different way, I have found advertisements of his for his medical treatments uh, dating from the 1780s. So that's before the, the great disturbances of Ireland uh, and the coming of the French in 1798 and so on, where you know the Irish are very much uh, associated with the French Revolution. So he's kind of an old-timer in America, uh, from what you can tell. And he is he's... an old-timer, but... Here's one of the interesting things about Farrell's situation. He's peripatetic. He doesn't come to any specific location and settle there. He is a cancer doctor, which is uh, not a university-trained or uh, elite uh, kind of physician. It's, it's kind of, a, in some ways, uh, a self-taught or apprentice type of uh, physician that he is, and cancer doctors get the cases that uh, more recognized doctors give up on. Uh, they can't treat them so, well, okay, nothing is to be lost by going to a cancer doctor or having a cancer doctor come to you. And Farrell uh, practiced in a variety of locations uh, that we found in New York State, uh, Connecticut, and in Massachusetts from the 1780s on into the 90s. Uh, he had uh, 
people who gave him uh, substantial testimonials for the excellence of his treatment. Uh, these included clergymen, uh, Yale graduates, Harvard graduates. So he's, he's in a kind of marginal place, and he had practiced in uh, Boylston in Worcester County for several years prior to coming to Leverett, and he was in Leverett for only uh, approximately eight to ten weeks before he was accused. So he's very much at the margin of the Leverett community. And in his trial, he explains, I shouldn't say in his trial, in his uh, petition letter to the governor, he explains that he's friendless, that he has no friends uh, in the community who can vouch for his uh, moral stature. And Gideon Washburn was a different case altogether. He was from Connecticut, born in Oxford, I think, uh, and in Derby. Yeah. Oh, okay. And but, but, but the Oxford is a parent become Derby. Oxford is part of Derby, right? Yeah. And um, and so he's from an old, relatively old family. They move into the Northfield. It's a 1630s family. It's, yeah. It's as old as Connecticut right. gets. Right. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a old Connecticut family. He has, um, um, his grandfather is one of the founders of the town. His father is one of the leaders of the town, uh, of Derby. Um, his family keeps on, you know, has, has, has some, um, uh, continues to have some, some, influence in uh, Derby, but he is um, uh, he is not the uh, wonder boy of the <laughs> Washburn's family. Um, and he would be uh, uh, he could be described as somebody whose uh, lifetime trajectory is downward. Um, in, um, it's one of those uh, stories that we don't tell often enough as American historians, the downward trajectory. We, we are uh, inundated with stories of, you know, um, um, you know poverty to, uh, to, to, to wealth, but there are quite a few people who are born to, to uh, uh, upstanding families, and, uh, and some of the Washburn family continue to do well. In fact, the, um, they had a Washburn tavern, um, and the building of the Washburn Tavern still stands in present-day Oxford, Connecticut, in 2014. Um, so um, he, on the other hand, um, lives on the margins. He becomes involved with uh, some smuggling, uh, not smuggling, sorry, counterfeiting uh, ring um, that is that is um, apparently so poor that they don't even do much in terms of punishment because you know <laughs> nobody could be fooled by the. By the low quality of his crime, of his of his criminal activity, he joins the military a couple of times. Goes to try to make money. Goes to war. Um, he um, he's literate. He's literate, and but he's he, but he's Episcopalian. So to talk about religion, one of the things mm-hmm. about him is that to be Episcopalian in um, in seven in eighteenth century um, Derby says something, says something you're not part of the congregational right. elite. And he is supposed, supposedly, according to law, to, to sort of town law, he was a great hunter, 
Um, and he was friends with uh, the Indian chief. There's still Indians living in Connecticut in the 18th century. Um, he's There's first, still Indians in Connecticut in the 21st century. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's, can't believe it. Yes, that's true. And they, um, But I think that the... Uh, um, I meant uh, in a different kind of way. And not on reservations, not on, necessarily. Not on reservations. They live part of the town. And and so they... Uh, he, he's... And, and he goes from... Uh, you know, it gets worse for him. And eventually, they, you know, he uh, uh, and his uh, younger son uh, moves to New Milford, uh, which is, you know, up in the... Uh, hills of Northwest Connecticut, and they lived there for a while. Um, and in the 1780s, his uh, um, youngest son, who um, his name is, is William, that's Keegan Warden, gets married and um, moves to, to uh, Northfield. He moves to Northfield. Northfield is like a little village uh, that is part of the town of Litchfield. Now, Litchfield is like, you know, the uh, cosmopolitan, whatever that means, for 18th century interior New England. But it's kind of a county seat. It's got the law school. It's got some intelligentsia. It's got U.S. senators. It's got the uh, uh, very important female academy. Um, and but Northfield is, you know, kind of, you know, where the it's a hamlet. It's a hamlet down, down the hill, and it's really you know, to go up that hill, which you have to go. And there's all these sort of, you know, Americans want you'll be familiar, are familiar with sort of the tensions between. Towns in the peripheries and the center of town, and conflicts over who will pay for this and who will pay for guard duty and who will pay for roads and, and, right. and the church. And, 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 and so uh, they are, uh, they settle in Northfield um, and they live there for, for some time. I mean, they live there uh, uh, for uh, over a decade before these, uh, these, these kind of uh, accusations uh, come. And the interesting thing about, about uh, the accusations against Kenyon Washburn is. And unlike Farrell, which what it was a, um, he's there six to eight. Uh, how long is there? About uh, eight to ten. Weeks. Eight to ten weeks, and they and the accusations emerge. Um, it, with the case of Washburn, um, when the uh, charges are finally filed, uh, they are filed, and they sort of charge that he engaged in sex with animals six different times over a period of three years. Which again brings us to the first question, you know, three years. What have you? We, why suddenly? Why is the sixth time? Why is the sixth cow so special? That, <laughs> right. Know, it needs protection. I mean, you know, what about the first cow? Um, you know, so so the um, uh, it comes to the question: Why do you bring charges against a person uh, for something that, if you know, supposedly he was have been doing for three years already? Um, and these are all with different animals. With different animals, according to uh, what we know. Though, um, so there's something about the charge, the, the, the sort of the um, the charge that it's kind of odd because it says, um, you know, that almost I, th- I think that uh, five of the uh, accusations happened on the first of the month. You know, on the first of the month. So I'm not exactly sure. You know, it seems to me like it says. Remember, you know, I think it was in. August 1797, so first of August they called it. Mm. But again, so why? Why exactly do you charge this uh, this kind of pathetic old man uh, who's not threatening anybody? Um, you know, you know, why do you not dismiss it the way John Adams dismissed it, the way um, the way communities did? I mean, in the 1770s. 
a New Hampshire farmer um, got drunk on the Boston Common and had sex with his um, mayor there. Lots of witnesses. What happened to him? He was tried and convicted of attempted buggery um, rather than execute him. I mean, that's really kind of, you know, it was kind of, and he was, there was a, um, a handbill that was published about it, sort of, it's kind of it's a humorous thing. That's the way society handles this. I mean, that's how we handle this kind of, why yeah, suddenly you execute That's the other piece of this, that is that it's not at all uncommon in the 18th century or the 19th to have some variant of jury nullification whereby whatever the indictment may be for, however grave the punishment uh, that would follow from the indictment, the jury finds something different. And instead of being uh, actual rape, they say attempted rape or lewd and lascivious conduct. Instead of uh, bestiality, they can say attempted bestiality. And, uh, I mean, when it comes right down to it, uh, proving the fact of penetration and emission is pretty difficult. Uh, you know, it's, it's a question as to whether an eyewitness can truthfully testify to all of those facts. And so here we are in late 18th century Western New England, so Western Southern New England. Um, there's an evangelicalism, a new evangelicalism that's starting to break out. In addition, there are two very extreme rival political parties, the Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans. Um, how did these cases fit into that? Well, it's, it's our conviction that uh, because of the whole array of uh, political and religious circumstances, the elite of both states, of Connecticut and Massachusetts, uh, at least a portion of the elite panicked. Uh, they were worried about uh, irreligion. They were worried about uh, the Bavarian Illuminati, you know, a secret society that uh, was against Christianity. They were worried about uh, French democracy, marbocracy, Jacobins, as they called their opponents. Uh, and under these circumstances, they were very fearful of maintaining order within their own two states. Uh, and the Federalists did not have a firm grip on either of the two states politically. In both states, there was an active, vigorous Jeffersonian party. And so it's our contention that the people who were in charge uh, made the judgment that we must enforce the law. We must enforce the law. The only arc of safety in this welter of political confusion, religious confusion, is to enforce the law. And so when common farmers, neighbors of these people, brought charges, they found it difficult to just sweep them under the rug or push them aside. Uh, and so they 
took them seriously. And once in the uh, judicial system, once it entered the legal system, there was a kind of inexorability about trial, evidence, argument, and then it was up to the two juries. And while both men, both Washburn and uh, Farrell, had excellent legal defense, uh, they also faced very serious prosecution. And the juries in both cases sided with the witnesses who were, after all, people of their locale, respected voters, farmers, chiefly farmers, property owners, uh, and if the witnesses swore that X, Y, and Z were true, it was hard to dismiss that. Uh, and so there were convictions. And then, then some difficult controversies developed because both in Connecticut and Massachusetts, uh, the idea that you would just go ahead forward without hesitating and reconsidering and executing uh, was not the case. The people in Massachusetts and Connecticut knew Beccaria and the penal reforms that were going on elsewhere. Uh, in Connecticut, Beccaria's treatise on crimes and punishments, including his section on crimes difficult of proof, which covered sodomy, had been printed in a New Haven newspaper in the 1780s. They knew about this. Uh, the defense attorney, the chief defense attorney for John Farrell in Massachusetts was Caleb Strong. He came back to Massachusetts, and the first case that he tried after returning from Philadelphia, Philadelphia where he had been one of Massachusetts' two United States senators, was the Farrell case. And and Strong knew very well that in Pennsylvania they were at the threshold of abolishing the death penalty except for treason and murder and had in fact before he left Pennsylvania uh, abolished it except for those two crimes. So, And he was also conscious that Massachusetts had a reputation for hanging Quakers, for hanging witches, that Massachusetts had a, a a problematic reputation when it came to uh, severe punishments. So the elite in Massachusetts was, on the one hand, uh, some of them were panicked about the uh, onset of Jeffersonian radicals and uh, Thomas Paine's deism and, and uh, the spread of irreligion, but they, there were also many who understood that uh, simply executing two men, or in each case in their state, one man, uh, for this crime would not be well regarded outside of their states, elsewhere in the United States, and would be a blot on Enlightenment Massachusetts and Enlightenment Connecticut. And you could talk about Connecticut's response a little bit. Yes. Well, you know, the... The challenges um, that uh, you know historians face is always um, connecting the dots between sort of the broader social, cultural, political developments and individual cases. So 
um, uh, what we found um, in in the case uh, in the cases, particularly in the kinetic case, is that there is an imperfect lining up of 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 of, uh, of political figures and religious figures in the Washburn case. Particularly, it seems to be, but it's not uniformly. It seems to be that um, uh, the the people who prosecuted Washburn um, were the uh, were for the most part uh, federalists um, who were anxious, as as Dick pointed out, um, over the um, you know the world coming apart. I mean, you know the the, the resorting to the law um, is sort of to, to, the law is the only thing left. Um, in if you think that the, that the world is, is is really collapsing, and, and that everyone agrees that the law has legitimacy, right? It, 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 that, legit, so what you have in the case of of of, uh, of Farrell and Washburn, you have you have really um, offenses that exist in the book, and suddenly they become. Um, um, a real case, and and that they need to be prosecuted, and to the full extent of the law, because we're going to assert that our society is orderly, that the kind of the the fantasies of a grand conspiracy that Dick mentioned is not, uh, we're not going to let it. I mean, happen in in in, in our midst. Um, we uh, we certainly will not allow um, uh, this kind of. Uh, Wild sexuality to to emerge, you know, the, the, and um, again, it, it it makes it all the more interesting why they choose these two old men because there's not exactly a plague of old men doing animals in the fields of New England, Southern New England. I mean, this is not if you're looking for for to make an example of somebody, get a couple of teenagers, um, but they don't. They choose these two men, um, and so uh, for you asked about. Um, the um, relationship between sort of the uh, religious and political dimension. So I'll give you a couple of examples, but there are many more. Um, one is that the uh, person who defends um, uh, Gideon Washburn is Pierpont Edwards. Um, Pierpont Edwards lives in New Haven. He is one of the sons of the great Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards from, you know, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and other such... Um, uh, famous tunes, um, and and so um, uh, he is the opposite of uh, his dad. Um, um, he is um, very much like his uh, nephew Aaron Burr, committed to life of pleasure. Um, he's also associated uh, with uh, a particular famous case of impregnating a woman who then dies in a tavern, giving birth in a tavern in Massachusetts, which becomes a a, the, uh, uh, the the plot for one of the more popular sentimental novels of the period called The Coquette. Um, and the character of The Coquette, uh, this, the divine seducer, is considered to be Pierpont Edwards. Edwards is the head of the Republicans in Connecticut. He never really goes to Litchfield for a patrol. He doesn't appear in Litchfield courts in other cases. He goes there to defend Washburn. Well, exactly why? What exactly is his interest in going there? Um, and the answer is that uh, Washburn's son, William, um, is 
seems to be not like Edwards a a a, um, a Freemason, and that Ed, that Edwards understands the challenge, the case against uh, Gideon Washburn as a case uh, as sort of as, as associating their Republicans, the Jeffersonians, with kind of um, degenerate sexual corruption. So you have this, and on the other hand of Edwards, there's a, there's a guy named. Um, um, I guess Uriah Tracy, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, who is the lead prosecutor, and he is the Federalist uh, Senator, uh, United States Senator uh, from the state of Connecticut. Now, think about it. Why would these two highly distinguished public figures stick their nose in such an odious affair? That was something that was striking to me as I was reading the book, like just how many famous people got involved in the lives of these two seemingly obscure men. Right. Um, and, and why? And why exactly would they care so much about it? Um, you know, I think the answer is these are capital cases. Right. And we may not appreciate it fully from this distance, but it certainly is my sense that uh, people certainly in New England and perhaps all over the United States at the time took capital cases very, very, very seriously. Uh, they were tried by the highest courts uh, and the best talent was typically engaged on both sides of the uh, contest. Uh, that's not true in many lesser kinds of cases where the consequences are much smaller, but for capital cases, this is what I've seen. In the next level, on the, on the religious dimension, I mean, we are seeing um, the uh, emergence of a kind of a revival in, in New England, um, led by uh, Yale President Timothy Dwight, um, who... who? Who is a grandchild of, of Jonathan Edwards? It's all in the you know within the Edwards family, right? You know, right. You know, and and, and Timothy Dwight um, uh, uh, had the opposite lesson. Uh, he, he learned the opposite lesson um, than Pierpont Edwards or Aaron Bear, another um, grandchild of, uh, uh, of of Jonathan Edwards. Um, and um, he uh, he comes to Yale actually to clean house. Because Yale was run by this guy named Ezra Stiles who believed in enlightenment and all this other stuff. No good. Um, and people, the students of Yale, you know, didn't, you know, did, you know, uh, didn't come to, to church on Sunday. They would read, you know, Thomas Paine. So he comes and he cleans house and he, uh, he has all these young men that he trains and he sends them all across New England and they generate revivals. And a year before the Washburn trial, the uh, the Litchfield Church hires a new minister, Dan Huntington. And Mr. Huntington um, um, brings revival to Litchfield. He, he, Huntington is uh, an Edwards acolyte. Right. And he uh, generates great deal of hostility within the community. The Jeffersonians... Um, feel alienated by him because he sides openly with the Federalists. And he charges uh, the, one of the most important Jeffersonians in the city of uh, Newtown of Litchfield, Ephraim Kirby, who would later um, uh, go to, would be sent by Jefferson to Louisiana. 
um, and Evan Kirby is also the author of the uh, first collected essay, collected cases in American history. So he's a man of, you know, if you study legal history in America or American law, he's an important figure. He charges him that he is um, uh, infidelity. In other words, that he doesn't, uh, that he's an, a, an atheist. Um, and, you know, in our mind, you know, being called this kind of name, you know, but Kirby is terribly offended by that. And this kind of scandal over, do you really believe in God or not, uh, reverberates throughout the nation. This is not only uh, a, New England, a New England thing, but in the context of Leachfield and the tension and the anxieties that are brought about by the, the world seem to be collapsing, you know, and then the, the French are going to come and they're going to invade and who knows, they'll, you know, rape our women and, 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 and uh, sell our children to slavery. Um, in this context, this becomes very explosive. And so Huntington comes into a, into a community that's very much, in, you know, experiencing strife and he just pours gasoline. Um, and part of the, 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 the part of the story is that um, um, the, the trial, the, the Washburn trial, is part of this uh, gasoline, but it's not the only one. Um, I want to uh, uh, just mention that uh, that this kind of resort to the Puritan justice, you know, is not the only. It's not only with Washburn. That you know, before Washburn, there is a governor of Clark who's um, tried uh, for bigamy, and this is this is in the same court session where Washburn will be tried. Before Washburn is tried, right? Other cases. Uh, there are two cases: one for a, for a rape by Phoebe Thompson, and the other uh, by you know, she is actually exonerated um, uh, from no, she, no, she was she was charged for for um, no, she was she was exonerated because she was raped and not you know I think it was what, what was the charge I forget the uh, I don't remember. Right. So it's, you got two old historians. <laughs> uh, I have to look it up. I have to look it up. That's right. Uh, and 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 but, but Clark, the punishment that, that that he gets is um, uh, he gets you know he, uh, he gets uh, whipped and he gets a brand he gets branded with letter A for for adultery, um, and that's completely uh, a seventeenth century pure injustice. I mean, what we're seeing here is in this moment of great anxieties, the these elite is. Resorting to to something that they to some Puritan justice that they sort of imagined would restore order, and I think what it gives us it gives us a sense about the anxiety that that, that that these people felt that they this is not something that they did lightly they they felt the world is collapsing they they, they saw um, you know uh, all the things they believed in endangered politically religiously culturally. Uh, the behavior of women who start to challenge, you know, kind of modes of, of feminine be- feminine behavior, and they resort by that as to, to you know to you know we are going to this is the law, this is really this is the foundation of our society, and the law must be upheld. I would add we didn't have uh, good statistics on this for Connecticut, but we did for Massachusetts, and what we <clears throat> learned in Massachusetts was that. Uh, prosecutions for sexual uh, misbehavior of any sort uh, essentially died out in eastern Massachusetts after the revolution. They stopped prosecuting adultery, lewd and lascivious fornication. Fornication. Yeah. It all, it, it, well, perhaps uh, 
tremendous sexual morality broke out in eastern Massachusetts <laughs> and bypassed western Massachusetts. Or else. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems really that uh, the Easterners are more cosmopolitan and they're more in tune with <clears throat> the ways of the commercial and transatlantic world and they've given up on worrying about these things in courts. But not so from Worcester County west through Berkshire County. Worcester, Hampshire, and Berkshire County see uh, a continuation of prosecutions for adultery, fornication, uh, as well as uh, rape. And I, I should uh, back a little bit. Rape is, is prosecuted in eastern Massachusetts, but rape is really a different crime. Rape is a crime of violence. Uh, it's a coercion. Uh, and they take rape very, very seriously. They will execute people for rape uh, in many states, including in New England. Yeah, but consensual things that they use to prosecute for fornication and, right. and other stuff, that is, that, that, that is true in Eastern Massachusetts. But interestingly, um, in Western Massachusetts, it remains, which suggests, again, that there's this residue of... of, of, of uh, um, of Puritan morality that still holds, and when um, and it's second great awakening country, right? Second great and when the sort of when, when the uh, uh, wolves are at the door, suddenly you know what are we going to defend ourselves with? If not, you know what we actually stand for. What do we stand for? For the people of, of Western Massachusetts and and and, and Northwest New England, what 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 do we stand for? For these cosmopolitan uh, uh, corrupt places for mobocracies, uh, it's associated with you know with the guillotine, with with French aggression, with um, you know these are all are we all we stand for for you know for virtue and, 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 and true values and loyalty to the to the legacy of our forefathers who in the name of uh, kind of uh, uh, of of just religion you know crossed the Atlantic and, and built those you know colonies both. Both Leverett, Massachusetts, and Northfield, uh, Connecticut, lie just outside of smaller cities. Like Litchfield, you know, as you mentioned, it had the law school, it had the Sarah Pierce Academy. Um, there were people who came from Yale to study with Tapping Reeve. Um, Northampton had been the seat of Jonathan Edwards. It had famous ministers. It had... Um, you know, it had Caleb Strong, <laughs> it had Caleb Strong. Um, just educated people. It had, they had newspapers and right, correspondence. Absolutely. And yet these two kind of peripheral towns generate these controversies. And it really does show the tension in the local areas. Right. And that's, that, and, and so you add to the kind of big tensions, the, the global tension, the cultural tension, those local tensions that that really are, are built into this. Though I think that that um, um, the in the in the case of, of Northfield versus Litchfield, um, I think the evidence more is pronounced because uh, Leverett is an independent town, um, but Northfield is not. And the interesting thing is that William Washburn, the son of Gideon Washburn. Um, is a prominent figure in all sorts of moves done in by Northfield to separate itself from Litchfield to have an independent 
uh, church, Episcopalian, mm-hmm. to uh, uh, build a, a road um, and um, to create a community there that's independent of downtown. And that is a threat to downtown Litchfield. So on some level, uh, William Washburn uh, is not... Uh, you know, he himself is not a big enough figure to, to be threatening anybody. I mean, he is the sixth richest man in Northfield. But it's like being the uh, sixth uh, um, most uh, uh, famous person in a little village. I mean, you know, out of, six, out of 30 people, he's the sixth richest. <laughs> right. You know, um, nothing in comparison to the wealth. And I mean, there's real aristocratic families living in, in Litchfield. I mean, the Walcotts, uh, the Frederick Walcott Sr., who was governor of Connecticut, and then he's, uh, uh, no, Oliver was uh, senior, right? Sorry, Oliver Walcott senior, and Frederick Walcott will be, uh, he's the one son, and then Oliver Walcott Jr., who will serve as, as a secretary of the treasury in, in the, uh, in the uh, Adams administration, and then afterwards uh, will be the governor of Connecticut. Uh, and, and the list of Tapping Reed, the only law school in America. Uh, the Talmages. The Talmages. It goes on and on. Yeah, the yeah. Talmages. There, there are some interesting things that I wish I could have untangled, but this conversation provokes. The Justice of the Peace, to whom the charges against Farrell were brought, was Simeon Strong of the town of Amherst just at the boundary of Leverett and also abutting Northampton. And uh, uh, Simeon Strong was an older man. Uh, He was soon to be appointed to the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts. So he's a person of estimable uh, stature, but he's always lived in the locale where he's living in Amherst. Uh, He's no cosmopolitan. And I've often wondered, suppose Simeon Strong had responded to these charges by saying, well, come back in a month and tell me about it, or "We'll, we'll look into it, I'll conduct my own investigation into it and get back to you, or some some stalling tactic, whether he could have uh, prevented this whole case from going forward. Uh, I suspect that he could have retarded the case, whether he could have blocked it if the witnesses were really bound and determined to prosecute Farrell, I doubt. Uh, But interestingly, his, I believe it's second cousin, uh, Caleb Strong, of Northampton will make a very strenuous effort to save John Farrell. So it's a kind of a an irony of people within the same family of Strongs, one of whom is very conservative and one would say looking toward the past, and the other much more uh, cosmopolitan, open to the new ideas of the 18th century, and uh, eager to see that uh, an enlightened form of justice is achieved. I have, we need to wrap up, but I do have one kind of last question, and it's fascinating how you have all this, you know, from the local to the transatlantic 
figuring into this sort of spaghetti of, um, you know, personal and, um, and very political history. What I'm wondering is, it, you mentioned that it would be pretty hard to write the story of these two guys and, you know, just tell their stories and leave it, right? So by themselves, they're quirky cases and they're interesting, but if you don't dig more deeply, you don't have much of a story. The political history that you unravel and the religious history that you unravel, I think is so fascinating. Would the political and the religious history be as good if you didn't go into these personal histories? In other words, you know, we can see how the personal history needs the political and the religious history. Do the political and the religious histories need the personal histories? Well, what I would argue, and Daron may uh, have some different ideas, thoughts about it, but what I would argue is that it's important always in our own time and in past times to appreciate how grand decisions at the macro level affect individual lives and the experience of people at the grassroots in very uh, particular and frequently life and death ways. So the Supreme Court makes a decision, whether the United States Supreme Court or the Connecticut Supreme Court. The legislature enacts a law. Uh, a judicial system operates. Uh, it has its principles. It has prescriptions as to how it's supposed to operate. But I think it's very, very important for people to understand the particularities of how it really does operate. What really are the consequences for people if this law is on the books or that law is on the books? Under what circumstances does the law come down hard on people? Under what circumstances does the law play a more relaxed, uh, permissive role? Uh, and I don't think that you can really understand and appreciate those characteristics of present or past unless you grapple with individual cases. And I would add to that, you know, that, um, that it's appropriate that you ask this question because um, the, um, the, the great uh, virtue of this kind of a book is that... Um, it has a great virtue. I'm glad to hear that. The great virtue of this kind of a book of microhistory. Um, that this, well, this book may not have that many great virtues, but uh, I hope so. Uh, the, um, is, is the fact that it, um, it, it provides this kind of, um, um, you know, look into, um, into the, uh, Tensions in society, but it's not—it's not on the abstract level. Um, it's its experience uh, as it affects individual human beings, and um, and this has been um, this this has always been the challenge of historians. You know, the uh, when you walk into a classroom and someone tells you, you know, the the, the uh, undergraduates tell you, well, you know, tell me really what happened. I want to know what happened, and sort of so you could say, oh, there was uh, industrialization. Okay, 
um, and you finish teaching all the history. Well, it's not really it. I mean, and, and, and really what by, by moving between the individual and the particular on the one hand and the broader social, religious, political, cultural developments, um, you get, a, a, I believe, uh, a more in-depth understanding of, 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 of those big picture uh, issues as well as um, how individuals uh, respond to them. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I just want to um, say that I found this such a fascinating book on, as we mentioned, law, the justice system, sexuality, politics, religion. You really got it all in here. And um, I'm sure our listeners will want to get their copy of Taming Lust, Crimes Against Nature in the Early Republic from uh, the University of Pennsylvania. I hope they get more than one copy. Thank you so much. Thank you.